For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. You may start noticing there are strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. Well, that's not beer. It's actually mountain spring water from the Alps, and it's called liquid death. Why is this water called liquid death? Well, because it will brutally murder your thirst, and their infinitely recyclable tall boy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. They also donate 10% of the profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. Those aluminum cans it comes in are recyclable and actually profitable for recycling facilities so they won't just end up in your local landfill like plastic bottles. Go get Liquid Death at your local Woodman's, 7-Eleven, Roundies, or Hy-Vee, or find Liquid Death re- retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com front slash film study. That's liquiddeath.com front slash film study.
Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We have a special episode for you today. You've seen Hard Knocks, and we're going to talk to an actual NFL player, uh, Daniel Wilcox, a former tight end for the Ravens, uh, about his experiences in training camp. And some of the stuff maybe you don't get to see in Hard Knocks, so it goes into a little more detail. How you doing, Daniel? I'm great, Ken. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Uh, great, great to have you again. We uh, we really liked your last show, uh, and, uh, and we want to get a little more into this here in terms of the training camp experience. And this is a great suggestion. I appreciate you uh, uh, making this for us. We uh, it, you know we've seen what we have on Hard Knocks, but the kind of thing we get, the level we get, is often getting locked out of the tight ends room, and that's the thing that makes an interesting story and whatnot. We want to hear those funny stories from you if you've got them, but I also want to hear a lot of the inside football from you about the training camp experience and 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 what it was like. So. Why don't you start with your very first training camp? Oh, wow. My very first training camp. You, you're making me go back to the archives. So um, my very, I think what I remember from my very first training camp was I, I was kind of scared, right? Um, I was a young kid. I went to all the little mini camps, all the OTAs. We have a, like a three-week break before training camp and mini camp. I mean, after mini camps, going into training camp. I went home to Atlanta to train, and I was doing the Jets off-season program. I was playing for the New York Jets as a rookie. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing the Jets off-season program given to me by my strength coach. And um, I had my head high school football coach calling out what I had to do. And I remember running these 400s around the football field. I remember feeling this pop in my calf muscle. And I, I, and I only like the second to last one I was running or something like that. We had to run like 10. It was crazy how many we had to run. And um, when I felt this pop, um, I kind of, you know, I kind of limped in the rest of the way. I said, man, I felt this pop. It felt weird, coach. Um, I, I waited the, the, the required time for me to run the next lap. And then um, I went to try to run the next one. I limped the entire one. And after that, I said, I'm shutting it down. I don't know what's going on, but something ain't right. So a week and a half later, I report to training camp, first day of training camp. And, um, of course, you walk into the locker room the first time, and, you know, now you see the whole setup, you know, where you got all these dummy lockers set up in the middle of the, of the, um, the, middle of the locker room, the temporary lockers, that's what we call them. Um, it's no guarantee that you're going to be on the team lockers. That's what we call them, too. You know, so <laughs> – I had one of those lockers, my helmets, my jerseys up. I got my name plate up top. Um, it's like those iron wire mesh letters, um, lockers. And then this is kind of really your first time getting a chance to see the entire team. You know, the, the many, you had one or two mini camps. You got a chance to see most of the guys, but you got those key guys that don't show up sometimes, you know, but go ahead, Ken. So, so the, the other, I just want to get a visual picture of this. Yeah. You, you had a metal high schoolish looking locker in the middle of the thing. And they had their nice wooden lockers with nameplates yeah. and much more permanent looking. They had custom lockers. We mm-hmm. had temporary lockers, the ones that they probably rented from Ikea or something. I don't know where they got those things from. <laughs> no, there was, it was these weird, it wasn't even like high school lockers because the high school lockers are at least mounted to the wall. Right. But these yeah. are actually just mounted to each other, like stacked up behind each other. You know, one facing one way, the other one facing the opposite direction. And then we're just lined up in the middle of the locker room where everybody would usually play dodgeball or, or play cricket or, or, or the beanbag toss game, you know. So that's so, during I mean, the regular seasons. They were going to pull right. these lockers out. Yeah, okay. it definitely was temporary. They yeah. wasn't planning on keeping them. You could tell right away, you know. Yeah. So um, I remember not knowing what position I was going to play. So, you know, in college, I was a receiver all the way through. My senior year, they moved me to tight end, and that got me into the NFL. So they brought me in, and they put me, you know, I think my first number in New York was number 40. So I wasn't sure if I was going to be a running back or a tight end or whatever, you know. So and then they bounced me around the entire time, you know. So but, um, you know, to be honest, Ken, like I was I was in awe. I mean, I'm in the locker room with Mo Lewis, Sam Coward, Aaron Glenn, 
you know, um, Vinny Testaverde, first round pick from the University of Miami, Chad Pennington, Marshall, throw to Randy Moss. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm Santana Moss was my first round pick that year, came in with me. And it was just such a phenomenal room to be in. Let's not forget the Hall of Famers, the Hall of Famer, um, Curtis Martin. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like him. And then I think um my boy Richard Anderson had just came from the Pro Bowl at, at fullback position. I was kind of like a model type, you know, next Richie Anderson type body, body type coming in. You know, only like I was 6'3". I think I was two two twenty eight when I got there as a rookie. You know, and they they gave they put me at tight end at first, and they bounced me back and forth from tight end and running back to receiver. So I know where I was going to play, and they was they was totally confused. They had no idea what to do with me. And you were undrafted, correct that year? Yep. Okay, so uh, yeah, your choice of teams, and I think we went through this on the first mm-hmm. episode. Pick the Jets because you thought you had a little thinner depth chart at tight end. Absolutely. So you know, draft day came by Ken, and when draft came. You know, I tell people this all the time. Like, it's one of the weirdest, but it's one of the worst feelings not to get drafted when you think you're mm-hmm. going to get drafted or you got a shot. You get in that phone call, hey, if you're still available, we're going to pick you up in the sixth. Hey, we're going to pick you up in the fifth. We're going to pick you up in the seventh. And I got two of those calls. So I thought I was actually going to get picked up, and then I ended up being undrafted. So it's, it was a very disheartening feeling that you didn't get drafted, but your phone absolutely rings off the freaking hook as soon as the draft over with. So yeah. if it was 15 teams interested in you, all 15 are calling you trying to invite you to camp, you know? So now you get a chance to kind of flip the script and you get to pick what team you want to go to. Tell us a little bit about that prospect. Cause we've seen the Ravens do it a little bit on their videos of how they're, they have like literally 20 guys calling different prospects. Tell me about fielding these calls. It's so crazy. So I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do because I didn't have any reference. I didn't have any, you know, App State, I think it was only two guys in the league at the time, Dexter Coakley and Matt Stevens. So I didn't have any reference or anybody to contact or talk to. So it was just my agent. I had the same agent as Champ Bailey at the time, Hmm. you know, um, Bob Pitter, Jack Real. You know, so I'm asking them, man, like, I don't know, like, everybody's calling me at one time, like, you know, which which team is the best fit for me? I'm thinking, like, which team is the best fit for me at this point? Because I really want a legitimate chance to make this team. And they educated me right then and there. It was like, well, we're looking at all the rosters right now, the tight ends and who they got. You know, nobody has a tight end like you. There was no 6'3", 220 tight ends at the time. You know, everybody was 6'8", 6'7", 280, 260. Shannon Sharp was probably the smallest tight end in the league at the time. You know, here I am coming in kind of his, his type, body type. You know, so, um, you know, they, everybody, my agent was telling me like, hey, we got to find a team that's the best fit for you. Baltimore really, really, really wants you bad. They came and worked you out. They came and trained you. They sent the coach, the position coach, the head scout, the head of player personnel came. They had everybody come to App State to work you out. So I think that's your best bet. I said, but they just drafted Todd Heap first round. Mm-hmm. They already got Shannon Sharp. They got Todd Heap. They got Ben Coates. That automatically puts me at number four. And they already got another guy there. And they're going to bring in other guys with me as well. So. I, that puts me in a bad shape. At the time, the Jets only had Anthony Beck. He was 6'8", 6'7", 6'8", like 280. You know, I was like, all right, I think that's my best opportunity. So <clears throat> New York wanted me really bad too. So I, I said, let's go to New York, man. I think that's the best fit for me. And we went to New York. We've heard a little bit about the process of increasing bids for uh, uh, UDFAs. And and I think the pool is now 150000 or something. It's, fr- it's fairly substantial. But at that's the time, awesome. it might have only been twenty five. For, was the total amount, and then how much did they give you? Five thousand. Five thousand. <laughs> you got five thousand dollars signing bonus, Ken. You got you got twenty percent of their whole pool. Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy. You know, used to have a one thousand. Uh, Billick described it as the one thousand dollar 
auction process or something where they they were they were you know increasing by a thousand dollars offers to two players and if they were really indifferent you know they they you know say okay it's three thousand if you want to take it if you don't we'll give it to the other guy kind of thing yeah um, but it's that's it sounds like you got a pretty substantial portion of their pool which is is great I think the best guy that came in that year was a kid from um, I want to say he played at Oklahoma State he was a running back named Reggie White. Mm-hmm. He was from Texas. So it could, it could have been one of the Texas teams he came from. But his name was Reggie White. Like, that's a Hall of Fame name, right? Yeah, sure um, it is. <laughs> and he came in. He was, I think he got 20000 that year. He was okay. the highest paid free agent that came in. All the rest of us got 5000 Tory Woodbury was a, a quarterback that came out of Winston-Salem State. He was my roommate. And um, Tory got the same 5000 signing bonus I got. The same scout that recruited me recruited Tory, Mike Davis, for the Jets. And Mike was Mike was phenomenal, man. He was just so down to earth, so cool, straight shooter, no bullshit. Just told me the truth right off the rip, you know. Like everything about Mike. Mike actually was one of the reasons why I was like, man, let's go to New York because I actually liked the scout, mm-hmm. which is a weird feeling to like somebody that you just met, right? And um, me, and he, he was like, man, I think you and Tori should, you know, room together because y'all kind of the same type of guys. And we both made it and played for a while, you know. Did you get to pick your roommate? That was one thing I wanted to ask you about, or did they yeah. just assign you one? Okay, yeah, they, they, we, we got a chance to pick our roommates. I wanted to room with Tory Woodbury only because Mike Davis told me that Tory would be a great roommate for me. And he was a young quarterback coming in. And we really thought we was a new wave of the New York Jets. We thought between Santana Moss, Reggie White, you know, Tory Woodbury, Daniel Wilcox, we thought we was going to be the four that was going to make the New York Jets a Super Bowl contender. You're talking about three undrafted free agents <laughs> and the first and the first pick overall Santana had this crazy chip on his shoulder because he was a, he was a little guy he wasn't a very big guy but he was a speedster that was coming out of Miami so you got that Miami attitude already that Miami swag and every veteran guy was talking crap to him if he ever got he couldn't get ran down by anybody because he was supposed to be blazing fast and he just got all these millions of dollars to be the number one pick overall to the Jets you know so he couldn't make any mistakes and to get the older veterans Every opportunity they got, Ken, they had something slick to say to him. And he had to show him right off rip, like, he the real deal. He the truth. And he did. He, he, he I mean, he lived up to his, his first-round pick status. He was absolutely – might have been the fastest guy I've ever seen on two feet at the time. And I'd never seen anybody run that fast. You know, so he was pretty impressive. He earned it. We got we got a San, look at Santana Moss in the 2004 game at the Meadowlands for the Ravens against the Jets, and that's the one that was immortalized by that wonderful precursor to sound effects where they did all the all the um, sort of announcing of the game or announcing of the video, I'll say, by players and the announcers that were at the game. But they did a really good job. The players on the field and the rock paper scissors for who's going to blitz between Demps and, and uh, Reed and some of the other stuff going in the field is just hilarious. A lot of the miking up the Billick was funny. Uh, I always felt bad for the, the center. A name begins with an R, I want to say. Uh, it's not Rayback, is it? In Baltimore? Yeah, in Baltimore in 2004. Um, it was the center uh, that year. Rawback. I, 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 I have the name. I think, uh, you're, right. I think you're right. It is something like that. It was a Casey first name. Like yeah, Casey that's, that's like it. That? That's it. So anyway, yeah. somebody, somebody, as he was getting up off the pile, pushed his hand right down on his groin. And it's the only time he speaks during the whole time. He's like, hey, get your hand off there or something. You know, so like, yeah. it's, <laughs> that is, that's his big line. So, yeah. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Casey Rawback. That's it. Yep. All right. So let's keep going in terms of your first camp. And and how how was your time scheduled for you when you're at camp? Did, did the Jets do a really tight job of that? I know we've seen Billick and some of the things he would do. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's always, it was always like a 5 a.m. wake up and you always had, um, 
you always had meetings early. You had you got get breakfast as soon as you get there. You got ta- you got to get taped, all that type of stuff before because you're not gonna have time after meetings. And then you go right into team meetings. Then you go into special teams meetings. Then you go into position meetings, um, offense defensive meetings. Then position meetings. You know, one on one with your coach. And then you you're out for practice. You know, so once you finish that first practice. Um, your quick lunch, you may have a couple of hours, you know, to go back to your room to lay down for a second. If you was like me and scared as hell, you, you went to, you went, you stayed in the lunchroom longer, studied your playbook, went to the team meeting room, studied your playbook, and you never took that nap in the middle of the day. And then you had to come right back and you had a second practice in the afternoon. And um, that was a longer practice and it was in the middle of the heat with pads on all that type of stuff. And then you would have more meetings after that practice. And it, I mean, you you was pretty much busy from six o'clock in the morning all the way to about 10 o'clock at night. Wow. And then you had like a, a, a they had they called it a midnight snack. They had a snack like around 11 or 12 o'clock for you. You can go and grab you something to eat late night if you needed to and take it back to the room or you can eat it in the cafeteria or whatever they got it set up at. And then you you had to get up at 5 a.m. and do it all over again. So you sleep deprived, you know, the entire training camp. You never get enough rest, never get enough sleep. Your body's beat the crap. You're banged up. You got tape everywhere. You got ointment. You always smelling like some kind of ointment. You're in and out of the cold <laughs> tub. You're getting treatment two, three times a day. And you're trying your best. Like you almost, they always, the, one of the going sayings, like you got all these, these veteran sayings. You can't make the club in the tub. I remember that all the time. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the tub, you can't make the club. You're in the club, you know, you, you can't make it. You can't make the club in the tub, mm-hmm. you know? So that means if you're in the training room, you can't make the team. Right. So you was terrified to have to go to the training room. And you have to go there twice a day anyway to get tape for practice. But you just never wanted to be the guy in there on one of those tables, you know, getting a massage or getting you know, stem or ice or, you know, boot or whatever the situation, heat. You're trying your best not to be on that table through training camp. And my, I remember my rookie training camp was probably one of the worst, most brutal ones I had ever been through because I'm coming from the receiver position and they put me at tight end and fullback and I'm going against the biggest linebackers in the entire NFL oh, yeah. with Mo Lewis, Sam Coward, and Marvin Jones. And then they had the biggest safety in, in Sam Garns that was probably one of the biggest safeties I've ever seen in my life. He looked like a six four six five monster coming downhill from the safety spot hitting me as well and um you know and then we had a big corner in marcus coleman you know marcus coleman was a six three six four guy too ken it's outstanding stuff so so everybody's smelling like ointment presumably it's not just you but you probably notice it more <laughs> on yourself in terms of if there's, there's some kind of way i want to ask you about your caloric intake back then because you mentioned they are they trying to feed you a lot of really small meals or are they trying to get you you know seven eight thousand calories a day because i know you can't live by on the two thousand that we might hold ourselves to sitting in a chair here doing football analysis no ken at this time i mean all that health stuff wasn't even really out there like that you know teams wouldn't didn't even have nutritionists back then as a Mm -hmm. rookie you know a nutritionist was unheard of so the food that they gave us was whatever they the, the chef made that day you know, okay. and you was able to make sandwiches on your own every day if you wanted to, like your ham and cheese sandwiches. And also you could make your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or your tuna melts if you wanted to. But most of the time, whatever they made for breakfast, lunch and dinner, that's what you get. You know, it wasn't it wasn't you couldn't have two, three plates of this or two, three plates of that. If you was hungry, you could eat as much as you want. OK, so we've and we saw a fair amount of that from the linemen in particular, the stacks of stuff they would have on their plate to eat just would. They earned Make it. a billy goat puke. <laughs> earned it. When I say they earned it, can they yeah. earned it? You see guys throwing up too, though. So you ate too much, you learn your lesson quick, you know, because okay. you'll get it back out there on that heat in that field, boy. That stuff starts to 
to get all mushed up in your belly. And, and it's like like a frying pan. You know, like a frying pan, you're kicking the food in your belly because you're so hot. You know, out there running around with them pads and stuff on, getting hit, and you're shaking everything up in your body. It's like a champagne bottle ready to explode. <laughs> <laughs> do, do they have a do they have a bucket for you over there for just exactly such situations? Because I think nah, nope. just on the field. They, they they you throw up on the field. They put some uh, on it. You might mess around and put your hand in it later on if you put yep. you go in three point stands. And they move the play over some and keep going. Like nobody stops. Uh, Get it out your right. system and keep going, man. So, that, 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 yeah, no that's the kind of inside football we're looking for. <laughs> so uh, maybe, maybe rookie hazing. Anything that you want to talk about there? Oh, it was plenty of that stuff going on. I, you know, I, for the life of me, I don't remember anything ever happening to me. So I don't know if the guys just respected me enough or I carried myself differently from the other rookies or whatever, but it was guys getting taped to the goalposts yep. and Gatorade poured on them and you know, tricks and stuff. If you piss somebody off, I remember somebody putting like shaving cream or something in somebody's helmet, you know, or, or, or you know, just, just crazy stuff, like dipping their mouthpiece in the toilet. You know, Ooh. stupid stuff like that, man. It's just crazy. Like, you just never know. If you piss the guy off, anything could happen. Oh, I remember somebody putting uh, Icy Hot in somebody's cleats. Okay, that wouldn't be comfortable. That was very uncomfortable. They put Icy <laughs> Hot in his cleats. So as when he first put them on, he, I don't even think he realized. He went to practice and he was running around. All of a sudden, his feet is on fire. And they, they had put, they laced this hole inside of his seat, his cleat with Icy Hot. Put gloves on, right? Yeah. And put they put the hand in the ice hot and rubbed it all on the inside of his cleat, nice and smooth. <laughs> and then when he put his shoes on, he went out to the practice field. His feet was all hot, hot uh, boy, feet. Boys will be boys. Okay, so did you have to do any singing or anything? Did they, did they get you for a yeah, talent that's, show? That's part of every team, I think. So normally you have to stand up in front of the entire team. They usually do it in the cafeteria or they do it in the team meeting room. Mm-hmm. And they ask you to stand up in front of the whole team. You got to say your first name, your last name where you from, what school you went to, and then what your signing bonus was. Yep. And then once you finished saying that, you had to sing some kind of song. And whatever song it was, you wanted to try to, you had to do your best to try to sing something that was very popular so that everybody could sing along with you. Okay. You know? And if they, if you did something that everybody could sing along with you, it wasn't that bad. But if you went up there and you you tried to act shy and then you didn't want to do something, oh, it's, it's, like a, it's, like, it's like a bad night at the, at the Apollo. <laughs> they, they're gonna boo you. The Sandman gonna come out, push you off stage, and it's crazy. Oh no, get him off there! It's, it's crazy. They let so you have it quick. What was your song? Do you remember? Ain't no mountain high, no. Ain't no mountain Everybody high. knew that. There you go. Ain't no mountain high. Ain't no valley low. You got a good Ain't voice. No river wide enough, baby. As soon as you say that, everybody jump in. Hey! <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it becomes fun. You got to make it fun. It's really easy and. You know, remember the Titans and all that stuff that came out. So it was kind of fresh on everybody's mind and all that type of stuff. So right, classics are always good. Can't go wrong go. with a classic. Uh, let's talk about your position group here. Now, now the position group meetings are always something I've, I've had interest in. I, I, I've always wondered, like, do they install part of the game plan there? Or how are they exactly telling you what you're going to do? What are they trying to teach you in those meetings? Uh, tell us a little bit about the experience. Most of the time in, in, in position groups meeting, you're either learning the actual playbook itself and they're telling you about the plays that are going in to practice that day. A lot of times they're going to pull up the actual playbook on the screen and they'll tell you they'll walk through each of those plays first. A good coach always does that to make sure if you have any questions, you have an opportunity to ask those questions now. You know, most of us are terrified to ask a question, so we just it's pretty quiet. 
you know, everybody acting like they know and nobody knows nothing, you know. <laughs> and then um, once he finished doing that, he'll show you a clip, like actual plays in the game that they've already ran those or practice plays from last year that we've ran or practice plays from many counts that we ran those plays. So you could get a, you could be familiar with that look again. And then um, once you finish going over that, then you're going to watch the practice from that day or the day before. And then we'll go over those plays, what you did right, what you did wrong, and then how we can do it better. And, um, you know, maybe you need to get a little bit wider on your on your seam route or you need to stem at the guy a little bit harder or you need to get better pad level when you're blocking. You're a little bit too high. Watch how he washes you down. When I want you to do the um, the backside cutoff, on, you know, the backside of the tight end, I want you to do a backside cutoff. You know, you got to dip your, you know, your outside shoulder down low so he don't forklift you out of there because I was always so light in the butt. You know, he's always have to tell me these little tricks to the trade to be able to be, to be able to put me in a better position to win. Um, my, my gift was quickness and speed. You know, I was so fast, so quick that I can get underneath those bigger guys before they can even get off the ball, you know, and that was, a, that allowed me to be very good on the backside of plays and stuff like that. On the front side of plays, I was good because I could cut them off. I could get to the outside pad, even if they was playing outside leverage of me, mm-hmm. I was so quick. I'd be able to jump to the outside pass before they blink good. And I'm able to, to kind of seal them off on the edge, let the running back run by. I wasn't able to stop the pressure up the field sometimes, but I would definitely get to the outside pad before they can get there. So All right. that was we my talk- scrim. So, I mean, the coaches, every coach I think is different too. So what, what happens is some of them allow you to be the best version of yourself and some of them don't. Okay, so they want you to be what will fit into their offense instead of what what you can be or, or accentuate the positives in you. How, how much do you think your position coach would go back to the offensive coordinator in this case and say, look, uh, Daniel's got these really ex- exceptional attributes. Can we try and build some plays around this? That didn't happen for me until I got to Baltimore. So let's say my rookie year in New York, they had no idea who I was, what I was, or, you know, if, they knew I was good because couldn't nobody cover me, you know? So they knew I was good, but they didn't know where to put me. They know where I fit in because I was an in-betweener, you know, body type, size, height, weight, everything. I was an in-betweener. Um, and then when I got to Tampa, John Gruden had the hardest time trying to figure out who I was or what I was or was that whatever. And the same thing. They could tell I was talented. The special team coach was the reason why I was in Tampa. And um, but they didn't know what to do with me. When I got to Baltimore, Wade Harmon, um, I can't, I don't know if Wade, Wade may be still in Denver right now, coaching in Denver with Broncos, but Wade Harmon was the one that knew exactly who I was. Brian Billick was the one that told me, man, you're an H-back. You know, you're not a tight end. You're not a running back. You're not a wide receiver. You're half of everything. You're an H-back, and you're gonna you're gonna be our starting H-back here in Baltimore. They didn't even have the position, so they put me at H-back, and they made me a starter through H-back. And Wade Harmon was the first coach I had that tried to actually put me in situations where I could succeed. And I think that's what that's why I struggled so much early on. They tried to make me a regular tight end. And I wasn't. I wasn't a big bruiser tight end. I wasn't an oversized big guy that could block like an offensive lineman, you know, but I had an exceptional set of t- tools where I could run and I could catch anything you threw. And uh, I was able to create separation at, from from day one. I was able to create separation. And and I was very quick and explosive on the backside of plays. And you could put me on front side of plays if you wanted to get that edge sealed off. But Wade was the only one that recognized that. And he was he allowed me. He said, all right, Wilcox, I'm going to put you in on this next play. He said, you got the backside cutoff on this. You know, do what you do. And, you know, he would let me know kind of prior before I even went into the snap. And he you, it almost like he wanted me to be there, you know. And that's and that's where the, the vote of confidence comes in, that when you get a coach to start to kind of realize that you have some abilities, these other coaches never realized my abilities. They knew I was good, but they never 
you know, accenting my abilities. So when you start to build that confidence, Ken, that's when you start to kind of come into your own in the league. And Wade would put me into – I remember my first training camp in Baltimore. I had just came from NFL Europe, played 10 games over there, plus three preseason games. And I come to Baltimore, and um, we had like – you know how you do the scrimmages? You have like one or two scrimmages and doing training camp? Sure. The first scrimmage, I caught the game winning touchdown. Wade put me in that position because he knew I could do it. And he was like, hey, Wilcox, going in next play. He didn't tell me what it was. He just called. They called a play. They break the huddle. Boom. I'm like, okay. I ran my route. Boom. Gave him a little move. Boom. Gave him another move. The next thing you know, he put the ball right on me. Catch the game winning touchdown. Everybody goes nuts. Was that about, they Kyle run. Bowler at that time? Say what now? Kyle Bowler? Was, or was it the I don't even know who threw the pass. I yeah. can't even remember. It's been so freaking long now. It could have been Bowler, though. It could have been Bowler. I can't remember if. I think Bowler was a starter when I got there. So it could have been him because I was running. I was already running with the ones by that you, time. You came to the Ravens, I think, in 03, stayed through 08, if I recall correctly. Is that right, or 04? I was 04 to 09. 04 to yeah. Okay, so Bowler certainly would have been the starter in 04. Yeah, okay. he was He was, He was. was definitely the starter from the beginning of the season. I can't remember if he was the starter from the count, but I think he was. I think it was him that threw me the pass. You know, I caught the pass, and I scored, and everybody ran out on the field because we just beat, we just beat the defense in the scrimmage, oh, okay. which is, like, unheard of, right? So we beat them in the scrimmage. We scored more points. And it was packed out there. We was packed out there on Westminster College. Mm-hmm. We just go to Westminster all the time for training camp. So we, it was packed. All the fans was there. I started to make a name for myself. I remember Ray Lewis coming up to me, you know, saying, hey, man, you number 44? I was like, yeah. He was like, keep doing what you're doing, man. Like you, I like your game. And that's all I needed, Ken. When I say all I needed, like I had been in Temple with Brooks and, and Simeon and Warren Sapp. Warren Sapp was an absolute asshole in Temple. <laughs> you know? And then I get to... I get to Baltimore, and then the number one guy who would have been sapped down there, mm-hmm. Ray Lewis, come up to me the first week I'm in training camp. I was like, man, 44, I like your game. And he didn't know my name. He asked me, he said, you number 44? I was like, yeah. He was like, um, I like your game, man. Keep doing what you're doing. From that point on, it was it was takeoff season. Okay, so he's seeing you in the cafeteria or something when you don't have your uniform, obviously, when he's asking you that question. I, I get you now. Yeah. Uh, outstanding stuff. So it's great that, you know, coming to to play for a head coach like Billick, who's an offensive-minded guy, and certainly he didn't, he had to play within some different constraints in Baltimore, not having the same kind of weapons he had in Minnesota, but he he must have really liked what he saw from you in terms of a, a, a versatile player, and, and that had to really help you, I would think. Yeah, I mean, he's the, he's the one that tagged me the utility guy. He said, Wilcox is a utility guy for us. He was the, That was the first situation I wasn't on a bubble for the first time in my life. And I, I can remember my, I think it might have been my second training camp in Baltimore at Westminster. And I can remember Billick telling us before the first cuts or before the last cuts, you know, one person that ain't got to worry about their job is Wilcox. He said that in front of the whole team. And that was one of the most coldest, most moving, more chilling moments I think I've ever gotten in my life. Because we we sitting out after practice and everybody's taking a knee and Billick's talking to the team, addressing the team. And then he literally said, looks and he was talking about, you know, players and we will have to make cuts soon and stuff like that. He was like one person that don't have to worry about their job is Daniel, is Daniel Wilcox. What point was he making? Was he making a point about your effort, special teams play? What was he trying to try to, try to talk about specifically? I think I think he was trying to allow guys to know that I had um, finally arrived. I, you know, I had made a, a name for myself. and. I, it was because I I was playing receiver. I was playing running back. I was playing fullback. I was playing tight end. I was playing all the special teams. And I had already played one season in Baltimore, led the team in tackles on special teams. And I played every single snap. And that my first year there, Ken, I had played football from January to January. Mm-hmm. Like, keep that in mind. Now, I had literally started training camp, you know, in NFL Europe in January. And then I go over to Germany 
in February, and then I play all the way to June, sign with the Ravens in June, start training camp in, in July, and I literally play from July all the way to January, you know, that following year. So I played a whole year of football. Yeah, that, that's that's really amazing. There's been one other Raven I know that did something like that, and that's Anthony Mitchell, who was with yep. the Rhine Fire. In, I in was the, too. I was with the Rhine Fire Ryan too. Rhine Fire, there you go. I know Mitch. I know Mitch. He lives in Atlanta with me. Uh, that's that's good to hear. You know, I've yeah. really wanted to get him on the show. If you could say something to him some point. I got you. I, I got you. I, man, I'll I love you. I'll plug you in, Ken. Uh, so so uh, anyway, Mitchell played with the Rhine Fire, played a whole bunch of games, then, then came and he, of course... Uh, picked up the out of the air, the blocked uh, field goal and took it 90 yards for the touchdown. And what probably, along with the mile high miracle, is about the most important play in Ravens history in terms of uh, right. uh, of what it's done. So fantastic thing. Love to talk to Mitch about that. In fact, I'd love That's to have him in Washington on the same show. It'd be a really cool uh, okay, thing cool. we could do that. Yeah, but, I'll definitely hook you up with uh, Mitch. I'll get you plugged in. All right. I, I do appreciate that. So let's let's talk a little bit more about you. And, and uh, you, you had a little bit of compare and contrast that I really want to get to on this show, which was talk about like the difference between a billet camp and a Harbaugh camp, because you did have one Harbaugh camp, right? Yeah, I had the first Harbaugh camp. It was horrible. First camp of Harbaugh was horrible. And this is the this is the difference. You know, I don't know if it's I always say it's the difference between coaches that have played in the league and coaches that hadn't, you know, billet would know, I think, when to let off the gas. You know, he would press the gas hard on us, and we went hard, 100 miles per hour every rep. If we put the uniforms on, we never lacked off. But he would know when to come off. He would give the older guys that extra day off in between, right? So it's like if you practice two days on Mondays, on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays, and Wednesday and Thursday, we still had two days, but those veteran guys had the, that morning practice was just a special team practice, so they had it off. Mm-hmm. You know, so the Ray Lewis's, the Eds, they, those guys don't have to come to those practices. You know, so they gave those veteran players a chance to rest up a little bit and rest their bodies. I earned that, you know. So by the time Harbaugh came in, I'm on my fifth year with the Ravens, you know, and um, I had already earned that break. Well, I, even though I was one of the top special team guys still, I didn't have to go to that special team practice and practice. When Harbaugh came in, they hadn't got this notion that we were soft. It's the Baltimore Ravens. Let's, let's be real, man. So he came in with a mindset that he got to toughen us up, you know, and his way of toughening us up was to make everybody freaking practice. So we practice every day. You know, it wasn't no veteran breaks at all. Everybody had to freaking practice and it was nonstop hitting. And the difference to me between a coach that's played and a coach that hasn't is we, the coach that played knows how your body feels Mm -hmm. when you hit that much. And I think Harbaugh didn't understand how our bodies felt. Right when we would go out there and bang, 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 bang so much. So we live. I mean, those live periods really take a toll on your body. And it's, and it's no other way to describe it between, besides running into a wall. You run into a wall repeatedly every play. Boom, 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 boom. Most of the time it's stalemates. It's not one guy going back or the other guy going back. It's full speed hit, and it stops right there, and then you're battling who's the strongest, you know, lower body, to try to move you in one direction or the other. Usually somebody gives. So it's like running into walls repeatedly, daily, 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 uh, over over 100 times per day, right? Harbaugh came in, didn't let up, and we went we went hitting, like, literally the first two weeks, like, nonstop, every single day, twice a day, and guys was freaking out. And we literally had this moment in camp where I don't even know if it's ever came out where we kind of bucked the system. All the players started talking in the locker room I was like, man, we got to talk to Harbaugh, bro. We can't do this no more. 
you know, we need a break. Like Billy would have gave us a break already. We we literally get into the team meeting room and and I think I want to say it might have been Ed Reed that stood up first or Chris McAllister. Cause you know they don't care. They don't mm-hmm. care. They, you know, so Chris stood up and was like, man, we need a break. You know, like straight up. Like we need a break. And then Ed chimed in, and then like a bunch of other guys chimed in and stuff like that. And it was almost like we was overthrowing the government. Mutiny. You know, and Harbaugh was pissed. He was so mad, so angry. And he was like, you guys just couldn't wait. I was going to give you a break off tomorrow. <laughs> and, you know, he was like, you just couldn't wait. Okay, so we've heard the last couple of days, and we're recording this on uh, on Wednesday, 921. But after the Dolphins game that just occurred, we've heard Rex Ryan uh, pop off a little bit about what's going on with the new defensive coordinator, yada, yada, yada. Rex and and uh, Harbaugh didn't really get along all that well in 2008, I'm I am led to believe. Um Rex, I tell to to me, Rex is is a very outspoken guy. So when you got two alpha males, right, you're always gonna have some butt button them heads and stuff like that. Harbaugh was a special teams guy. He wasn't a defense or an offensive guy. He was a special teams coach that got a head job, which is which was unheard of at the time. He was the first I think has ever gotten it, right? You know, but I think Bashadi them wanted a, a mix up because they felt like we had a Super Bowl contending team. They needed somebody to come in and not be afraid to put their throat, they, they foot on our throats. You know, so Harbaugh was the guy. He came in. He wasn't afraid to put his foot on nobody's throat. He made it his team right away. And um, I mean, we we bought into what he was doing. We just didn't like some of the things that he was doing. And we knew we needed to have that edge. And we knew we needed to play a little bit differently than what we were. But I mean, let, let's face it. He inherited the best defense in the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just he had some really phenomenal players on offense. You know, all you really needed really to be 100% honest with you, Ken, all he needed was a quarterback. Mm-hmm. You bring a quarterback in, Billy would have won a, ta- a, a, a title. The reason why guys was tired of Billy, your Ray Lewis's, your Aries, your Suggs, and stuff like that, they felt like not only was he arrogant with you guys, but he was arrogant with us. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you can't be arrogant with your players. We walk down the hallway. We say, what's up, coach? We want you to say, what's up back? You just don't just walk by us act like you didn't hear us speak to us. But he had got to that point where sometimes he wouldn't speak to Ray or Ed or Suggs. And, you know, and it was kind of weird. Chris McAllister, who was very outspoken, wasn't going to take that from nobody. Samari Roll, et cetera, man. You know, you know, so it was a weird feeling. So the guys that had never been anywhere, that was an issue for them. For guys like me, who was a world traveler guy, that yeah. bounced from the Jets, the Bucks, the, the Ryan Fire, and now Ravens. Shit, he ain't got to talk to me all year. I don't care. Let's go play. <laughs> Let's go win. You know, but that became a problem. So when Steve Bashadi, who's very inquisitive, man, very inquisitive guy, super sharp, he wants to kind of know what's going on in the, in, you know, behind the scenes, behind the walls, he would ask questions. And he would talk to guys. And I think he, when he started talking to his key guys, they was like, bro, we need a new coach. You know, but guys like me, if you talk to me, like, shit, I'm all for Billy. He's awesome. He understands our bodies. He gives us breaks when we need breaks. He works the crap out of us still. We still worked hard. Nobody can't say we didn't work hard. You guys, any of those players, they'll tell you we, we worked hard every day. You know, and um, he just he just had a sense of arrogance that kind of hurt him. And he wouldn't get rid of Kyle Bowler. He wouldn't get rid of Kyle Bowler. Okay. The, the uh, It was... That was a bad moment for him. That 2003 draft was not his his greatest time because they wanted to draft Leftwich, and that would have been even more of a disaster to not get Suggs. And uh, Leftwich, slightly better quarterback probably than Bowler, although not not, not discernibly better. Yeah, what he and, did his career now. And then, but but you would have lost Suggs in that first round if if they uh, if they hadn't had the phone call mix up stuff going on. Uh, it, 
it, I did want to ask you about Bishotti a little bit. So you mentioned Bishotti was going to the players. Bishotti, a very approachable owner from your perspective. Were you able to go, hey, to him? Or I know there are a lot of guys who are playing pool with him. I'm going to tell you right now, Ken, I would run through a brick wall for Steve Bishotti. He's the best owner I've ever had. Woody Johnson was an awesome owner in New York with the Jets, but nobody likes Steve Bishotti, man. He's he's first notch, top class. He cares about the team. He cares about the city of Baltimore. He cares about his players. Like he really, I really honestly feel that in my heart. At least that's how he made me feel. You know, I met his wife, met his kids. Um, he, when I got hurt that year, I want to say it was 2007. I got hurt, and that was my first time in my career ever really being hurt on crutches, can't play, whatever. I remember being able to, he invited me to his box to watch a game. Wow. You know, I went to the owner's box to watch a game. This is an undrafted free agent out of mm-hmm. Atlanta, Georgia, went to Appalachian State, Georgia Military Juco. And here I am in the owner's box watching the football game. I go out, I sit out front, and I go out, I sit out in the front part where you can actually hear the crowd and see the play first off. And he came and sat beside me. He started asking me real life questions about, life or what I wanted to do to be great. And he gave me some great advice, man. The years I was in Baltimore, I wish I had just really went to go know him more early on. And I got to know him immediately because he introduced himself right off rip. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know how approachable he is because you just came from the glaciers down in Tampa. I just came from Woody Johnson's in in New York. And now, you know, here with the Pashadis and you're sitting there and you're talking to this man and he's asking you about his team. You know, he was like, what do you think we need to do different? You know, like, what do you think is you think we're doing this right? You know, and he keep really inquisitive. He really wants to know. The fact that he would ask an undrafted free agent that worked his way from the freaking bottom to the top, you know, a question like that to me is 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 first class. Is the same thing. He's the one that told me to treat the the, the janitor like the owner because the janitor mm-hmm. could be the owner's uncle or cousin or, or, or nephew. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know. He was the one that told me. He said, Daniel, he said, one of the things I like about you is that you treat everybody the same. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, you treat everybody like you treat the janitor like he's the owner. You speak to everybody. Everybody around the complex respects you. The firemen, the HR people, you name it. You know, you treat everybody with respect. And he said that was one of the things he liked about me. And I never heard that analogy before. You treat the janitor like the owner. I just always treat people with respect. And I never did anything different from that in my entire life. That's how my mom raised me. You know, and he said, you treat the janitor like he's the owner, too. And he said, you don't treat me any differently than you treat anyone else, but you treat everybody with respect. And he says, that's one of the things I like about you. You got a very good character. That's 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 absolutely great to hear. And and Bishotti has had he, he's been so remarkable in his hiring process and some of the openness that went with that. One of the things I tell people about is uh, season ticket holders all got a little magazine. It's kind of like a game day magazine, but it's it's just it's a brief thing. But it explained the process in hiring John Harbaugh. And yeah. I, I appreciated seeing that so much on multiple levels. First of all, the process was fantastic in terms of how they vetted people, who talked to them, all kinds of stuff about how they were gathering information, you know, that they went to Garrett first and they made him an offer and they said that, and then they went to Harbaugh. He really was their second choice. They were open about that. They're not trying to, you know, fill in the paste after the fact and, and just pretend like Harbaugh was their first choice all along. Right. Um, but it's just, it's extremely well done. And, and in terms of what they were looking for, I handed that out to the other managers at work. And I said, you know, this is a great example of how to hire people. And Steve Bishotti comes from this hiring background mm-hmm. that, that is, is really terrific. So it that's doesn't surprise me. That's how he made his billions. Me. Yeah. It yeah, doesn't surprise me That's how he made his all. billions, yeah. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know how he had got rich or whatever. And he, he actually told me, you know, he just started with uh, basically a company that just vet people for other companies um, where he you hire people for security for the football games and major events and all that type of stuff, a staffing company. Mm-hmm. He got rich off staffing people. 
you know, businesses and stuff. So you need somebody, temp services, whatever you want to call it. You know, he that's how he made all his money. You know, and he's just, he's done a phenomenal job. And he told me, he said, I remember one day talking to Steve and I was talking about like, West, I, I, tried, I tried to talk to him about investments. He looked me straight in my eye. He's like, the best investment you got is you. He said, there's nothing else that you can do that bring in the type of money that this job that you're doing right now will give mm-hmm. you. He said, you can go and you can invest in stocks. You can invest in all these other things. But if you really took the time to invest in your body in the off season and invest in your training in the off season, and then put your time into your playbook, those three things, nothing else is going to give you the return on investment that those things will do. You know, so if I, this year, if I'm, if I'm a starter and I catch 20 balls next year, if I'm a starter and I come back and I've worked my butt off all season long, off season long to make sure my body stays healthy and I put the time into the playbook, and I know everything and I'm better this year than I was last year. I could catch 60, 70 balls. If I catch 60, 70 balls, I'm going to come from making 450,000 a year to getting at least four or 5 million a year. And he said, no other investment will give you that. Stop wasting your time trying to look for a get rich scheme. You are it. I, I wish that other players would look at it that way during the offseason. And there's a lot of star players who I think have really failed to, to go out and seek the positional coaching. We're lucky in Baltimore. Lamar Jackson is just the opposite. He's he's a yeah. fantastic offseason learner. You know, I I, I have individuals on the team that, that I think are not doing it, but I'm not going to get right into it. I'm uh, glad you said that, Ken. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely 100% agree. I, I don't know why people hate that kid so much, Lamar Jackson. I, I think it's because he's still kind of rough around the edges, right? You know, he still, he wears the jewelry. He mm-hmm. still, you know, he wears his hair, you know, free. You know, he just, he goes out and he's himself. He's a typical guy that you would see in Florida if you walk down the street. Right. And he he's not shy about, you know, representing his culture, representing where he's from or whatever. He's not polished. You know, he still speaks a little rough when he talks to the media. You know, he still has a little slang in his talk. And I think that's why people hate him so much. I don't know. And it's just the fact that he's a black quarterback, man. It just it sucks for him because he's I, phenomenal. Phenomenal. He, he, not only is he great, I, 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 there's no aspect of him that I find unlikable. There's none. Exactly. And, and, and the, if occasionally he said some things on Twitter that I think maybe it's better if he didn't do that. But honestly, that's so minor compared to what what the the things you find to hate about other people. So I mean, your your comments about Warren Sapp earlier are probably based on actual things that Warren Sapp did. I can't imagine that that, that Lamar has done such things. I mean, we see her, you know, helping up a camera woman on the sideline, and you know, I just he seems to really care about not letting his foot come down on somebody, even accidentally. I mean, I just, I really appreciate the human guy. being he is. Yeah. He's a great, phenomenal guy, Ken. And I mean, I was up there with, in the player personnel department for that year and he was really good friend with Orlando Brown Jr. Mm-hmm. And I played with Orlando Brown Sr., you know, Zeus, mm-hmm. you know, his dad, you know, so I knew Orlando Brown since he was 10, 11, 12. So when I came up there in the player personnel department, here he is starting at, at right tackle for the Ravens. I'm like, boy, you look just like your daddy, man. You know, man, I really miss your dad. You know, I'm talking to Zeus. He knew exactly who I was. He remembered me from way back when because me and his dad played right by each other. We were side by side all the time. You know, and I love Zeus. Zeus was like my bodyguard. You know, so anywhere I go, if I'm kicking it with Zeus, I felt safer than anybody <laughs> in the world. You know, so it's like, man, your daddy was one of the most amazing men I've ever met. So Orlando introduced me to Lamar, and I got a chance to kind of know Lamar through that training camp. And I think there was a sense of relief, of release, not relief, but release from Lamar and the rest of the players because there was, you know, Sam Cook that knew me, Marshall Yonder that knew me, I played with, and then now you have Zeus, you know, that knew me as well. But he knew me not from playing with me, but from childhood days, you know. So that kind of put me in like a sense of 
all right, Wilcox is okay to talk to. You know, even though he's working for the people upstairs, he okay to talk to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I got a chance to know Lamar a little bit that year, and I was just impressed with him as a as a, as a star quarterback, first round pick. You know, I mean, early round pick. He went first, but you know, at the same time, at the same time, he's just a phenomenal guy, just a good, really good guy. And I watched him. I studied him in training camp every single day while I was there, and I was just really impressed with the type of player he is. And when people sit around and say to make the comments they make. Nobody knows how hard it is to be a quarterback, but a quarterback. Mm -hmm. So to me, when quarterbacks talk about him, that's what I listen to. Forget the commentators, forget the fans, forget the other guys that ain't played quarterback. But when you watch guys like, you know, Elway, Montana, you know, Brett Favre, you know, freaking Tom Brady talk about that guy. That's who I listen to. Forget all the other smoke. You know, like all the smoke is smoke. Is just, it is what it is. But when you hear real quarterbacks talk about quarterbacks, that's when you know you got something special. And those guys always give him the biggest up. Michael Vick on down. They give him the biggest ups. He's way better than I ever was. Vick said that out of his own mouth. You know, he's way better than I ever was. Just watch and see. And you're seeing it. for Every week you see it. They lost last week, and it's Lamar's fault. We gave up that's six ridiculous. touchdowns on defense. <laughs> we, gave, we never give up six touchdowns on defense, you know. so And it's, and it's Lamar's fault. He had you with a 21-point lead in the fourth quarter. The only score, only points that he did, he wasn't accounting for was the kickoff return by Duvernay. Mm-hmm. And it's still Lamar's fault. Come on, man. It's, really? It was absurd. It, it, uh, it there's absurd. a lot of things coming out of that game that are just absurd. We're gonna we're gonna go down a deep rabbit hole if we do. <laughs> I, I wanna I wanna get to what I think always training camp comes back to when we think of yeah. being as kind of the ultimate day, which is cut down day. Um yeah. in terms of how you spend your time there. What what behaviors you can't do? Can, can you like not talk to anybody else, or you know what, what what's what's your normal kind of uh, way of going through that day? Now, you weren't in jeopardy after the first two years, right? I wasn't in jeopardy at Baltimore at all, mm-hmm. but I was in jeopardy my first two years in the league the entire time. But I mean, you never get over that, you know. You never get over that, you know. My first my first year, I got cut the first week in New York. You know, I balled out. You know, I got hurt the first day of training camp. Mm-hmm. And I end up, um, you know, popping a, a, a something in my calf, and um, the first day it got reaggravated from the summer workouts, and then um, I end up sitting out the next three days. Herm Edwards walk up to me, put both hands on my shoulders, look me in my eyes, say, "Wilcox, come here, let me talk to you." He was like, "Hey, man, how you feeling?" I said, "Man, I feel all right, Coach. Man, I can't run right now, but I mean, they saying I'm out two to three weeks, um, but I mean, I can't wait to get back on the field. I'm excited, man. I really am a little upset that I didn't get a chance to even put my pass on." And he was like, don't worry about it. You're fine. He looked me in my eyes and said, you're fine. He said, let me tell you what, you had a heck of a minicamp, heck of OTAs. If you do half of that stuff in pass that you did then, you're going to make this team hands down. And they literally cut me the same day. <laughs> they, they, later on that night, I went to dinner. I think he spoke to Herman Edwards, went to dinner, ate dinner, came back to my room, and they told me to get my playbook, come see coach. Okay. And they cut me the same day. What do you what do you do when you when you get that knock? First of all, because most NFL players they get that knock at some point. It's only a precious few ever get to retire on their own terms at some point. Uh, but yeah. but t- tell me about what that's like. So somebody comes to your room, they knock on your door, they say, first of all, it's it's some guy who's a assistant to the head coach, I guess, who does it, right? Well, it's not necessarily that. A lot of times it's a scout, it's an area scout. So it's somebody that you don't see all the time but somebody you see in the building from time to time, so his face is familiar, you know who he is. But um, a lot of times it's somebody like that. We call him the Turp, or we call him the Grim Reaper, right? And it doesn't always happen in your room. Sometimes it happens in your room in training camp where they come knock on the, on the, on the hotel room doors or the, or the dorm room doors, and they take you, you know, in the middle of the night or early in the morning before you get up. So you just got up, you didn't even brush your teeth yet, and they knocking on your door 
and you still sleep. And they're coming to get you early because they start some of the cuts early in the morning. And you don't know how the process works. Sometimes you're in the hot tub, cold tub, cafeteria. You could be anywhere when this happens now. You know, I don't just want you to think it's in your room, laying down, and you sleep. But sometimes they wake you up at 5 a.m. You're the first one to get cut that day. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they, they, they come in your room at 11 o'clock at night. You don't went through an entire day of practice. They don't got a whole day of work out of you. And then they come to your room at 1130 at night. You're in the shower, got in the bed, put your underwear on, got in the bed. And you land in the bed, finna go to sleep. And they knock on your door telling you to come see coach. You know, but it's not a great feeling at all, Ken. It's probably one of the, it's probably one of the, the weirdest feelings that you probably ever experienced because you come from these highs of, you know, practicing training or whatever. Your body's beat up, you're tired. It don't matter how much pain you're in at that moment, you, you feel numb, mm-hmm. right? You don't feel any pain from that time. They knock on your door, you open the door, and they ask for Daniel Wilcox to come see coach. And from that walk, from wherever you are, even if you got a busted ankle, you're walking normal. You know, it's one of those weird things, man. We just don't feel no pain because we're just numb to whatever is about to happen. And you know what's about to happen. As you take that walk, you know, back in the day, they never really said anything to you. You know, so whoever came and got you, they took you over there, opened the door, let you in. You go in, coach here, you come in, sit down, you put his playbook on coach's desk. And then he started having a conversation with you. He's like, hey, man, at this point in time, you know, we're going to let you go. Sometimes it's the coach, sometimes it's the general manager. Back then it was the general manager, I think. It wasn't Herm Edwards. It was Mike Tannenbaum. You know, so Mike was like, I mean, it was, he was about as cold hearted as they get. He can he get two shits, whether or not it hurt you or not. That's how I felt. You know, he, he had the little beadiest little black eyes. And it was like he was the devil reincarnated for me. You know, <laughs> so it was like, hey, man, we're going to let you go. You know, sorry, it didn't work out or whatever. You got to let you go. And, and it was just like that. Shook your hand and you out the door. You know, and um, I, 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 I tell this story. When I, when I think about this story sometimes, the first time I got released from New York, I mean, I was absolutely crushed in. Like, it, it still brings tears to my eyes. This happened in 2001, right? And it still brings tears to my eyes in 2023. You know, I, when they released me, I was like, oh, it's cool. You know, it is what it is. You know, trying to play it off. You know, like, it ain't bother me at all. I, I go back to my hotel room, my dorm room over at Hopsbury. I was at Hopsbury University at the time. This when the Jets was out in Long Island. Mm-hmm. You know, I go to my, my my dorm room, pack up my stuff, let my roommate know, let Woodbury know that I got cut, man. Just released me. He was like, really? And everybody was shocked because I had balled out. When I told you I had a heck of a mini camp and OTAs, I, we, I told you we thought we was going to be the next Super Bowl champs. Mm-hmm. We, we was going to be the ones to lead the way. <coughs> Excuse me. And then um, I go pack up my truck. I had just bought a Harley Davidson F-150. 2021, the black on black with the red and gray stripe at the bottom, put a tunnel cover on the back so I could carry my stuff from Atlanta to New York, loaded the whole back bed of my truck up with all my gear, all my stuff, closed down my tunnel top, jumped on the New Jersey turnpike, started heading south to Atlanta, drove 15 hours straight. They didn't, uh, well, you had a car, so maybe maybe the, that was the thing, but do they normally, they arrange all your plane flight and get you home? They'll pay for your gas money and everything. So whatever you pay, whatever, however you got to get home, they're going to pay for you to get back home. Okay. So they paid for my gas. They didn't give me money up front. They reimbursed you later. Okay. I don't even think I even got mine. I was just like, I'm good. Meals, <laughs> hotel on the way, if you have to stop, they'll, they'll pay for that kind of thing. Okay. I wasn't going to stop at a hotel. Okay. I drove 15 hours straight. Before I got off the New Jersey Turnpike, I picked up the phone. I called my mom. You know, at the time, you know, she, I think my mom always been the closest person to me. It was just me and her growing up. I didn't meet my dad till I was 17. So the person, only person I felt like I could tell was my, was her. And I was coming home to her. So I'm like, hey, mom. 
she was like, hey, baby. She was excited to hear my voice because, you know, I'm in training camp. So I'm like turning the phone off, focusing all that stuff the whole time I'm there. She was excited. Hey, baby, how you doing? I was like, I'm all right, ma. She was like, you don't sound like, what's wrong? Instantly. Soon as she said, what's wrong, baby? I said, money just cut me. Soon as I said it, my voice started cracking. I'm to my bawling crying. I don't even know how I could even see driving down the turnpike. I'm talking about crying, talking to my mom. She's like, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Everything happened for a reason. You know, God's always had you. God, you know, she hit the God, talked to me and started, you know, telling me she's going to pray right now. And she started praying for me on the road. Man, I'm to my bawling. I probably cried 10 times on that trip. Just every time I thought about it, I just, I'm thinking like my career is over. My dreams are over. My, you know, I mean, just, just think about, let's say if you was a broadcaster, right? Say, Ken, you've been in broadcasting. You've been wanting to do this your entire life. You know, as a kid, you saw this broadcast. You just thought it was so cool that he did this stuff. He was in a tornado or whatever. You're like, I want to be that guy. And from five years old, you knew you wanted to be a broadcaster. You go to school, you study communications, you get your broadcasting degree, you go get your master's. Woo-woo. Now you're the best in the world. You're one of the top in the world in broadcasting. You go get that job. Within the first three months, you get cut. You get yep. fired. And you're thinking it's over. Nobody else going to hire. It's only 31 other people that could hire you. You know, it's not like it's 200,000 jobs out there in broadcast. There's only 31 other jobs that you could possibly get. And all 31 of them jobs never wanted you anyway. There's only 10 or 15 that wanted you. So there's only 14 other jobs that possibly want you, and you just got cut before you got a chance to show the world that you're worthy of being the best broadcaster in the world, and you're thinking it's over before you got a chance to show the world. Yeah, that's just that fast. It's extremely relatable in a lot of ways. I really appreciate you, you know, opening up to us with that story. Yeah. That's really that's really great. Uh, but you you got a you got another opportunity. Then your next opportunity came with Ryan Fire. That was the next the next no the next no, year. no 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 no. So I go home. I'm sitting on my mom's couch for like two three weeks. Totally depressed. I don't even know what depressed mm-hmm. is. I just feel like I didn't want to do nothing. That's how I felt. Didn't even realize I was depressed. My mom telling me I need to go get a damn job at Home Depot or Kmart or. Kroger or some mess like that. They're, they're not even Kmart's open no more now. <clears throat> but anyway, one of my boys came and got me off my mom's couch about week two, week three. And um, he was like, bro, you can't just stay in the house all the time. Come on, let's go hoop. Let's go play basketball. Let's go do something. He take me to the park and I, I actually feel good. You know, I feel okay. So I'm running up and down the basketball court. You know, next thing you know, I'm like, bro, like my calf ain't bothering me at all. Like it actually just hit me like, oh, I hadn't did anything since I left New York now. I ain't worked out, I ain't did nothing. Just sit on my mom's couch and just watch TV and sleep. That's it. So I'm like, okay, I feel fine. He was like, for real? I was like, yeah, I don't feel like nothing wrong with it at all. Next thing you know, I said, hold on, let me try to dunk one time. In between games, I want to dunk the ball. No problem. Next time we played, next game we played, I caught three alley-oops. Mm-hmm. I'm from like half court. Like, ain't nothing ever wrong with my, I'm like, God, are you trying to tell me something? Soon as he, soon as that happened, I called my coach in New York. As soon as I got home from playing basketball, I was like, this was Coach Phil Petty. He was my tiny ends coach. I said, hey, Coach, I know you told me to call you when I felt better. I just finished playing a whole game of two games, three games of basketball, and my calf is 100%. I don't know why or you know why it's okay, but it's, it's 100% healthy. He was like, really? I was like, yeah. He said, you, I said, Coach, I was dunking and everything. He was like, you serious? I was like, yeah. I feel great, man. I don't know why, but I'm good. He said, I'm going to call you back. He hung the phone up. And then about 20 minutes later, he called me back, said, hey, pack a bag, go to the airport. I'm going to have a flight waiting for you. I'll call you back with the flight information. All right, cool. Hung up the phone. I packed my bag real quick, just threw some stuff in my bag, went straight to the airport, left my truck at my mom's house. She dropped me off at the port. I get on the plane. We pray before I get on the plane. I get to New York. As soon as I get to New York, they take me right to the hotel that night. The very next morning, like 6 a.m., they had me come over to the um, um, facilities. My head, my, the head coach was there. The general manager was there. 
freaking my position coach was there. He said, I just need to see you move around a little bit. So they put me in my little shorts and, and, and um, T-shirt, workout shirt. I went out there, did like 10 drills. He said, all I need to see, throw me the deuces, go get ready for practice. Wow. And they, they cut the guy they brought in to replace me, gave me back my jersey, back my helmet, back my little put together Lego locker. And um, I, I was back I was back in New York Jets. At this time, it was only one preseason game left. And we was playing against the Philadelphia Eagles. We had missed, I had missed all three of the preseason games sitting at home. So it was one preseason game left against the Eagles in, in Philly against McNabb and company. And I literally, you know, that was the only game I played the whole preseason. I practiced that one week just enough to be able to get on that field. And I went down and I made a couple of plays on special teams. And then uh, the last play of the game was a Hail Mary play. And they put me on one side of the field by myself. They put, <clears throat> they put Santana Moss. I think it was Santana Moss, Kevin Swain, and somebody else on the other side. And then they, they ran all of them down like in a triangle pattern. <clears throat> and I was on the backside by myself. By the time they tipped the ball, kind of like what happened to App State this last week, I was there to almost catch it. I dove for the ball, almost caught it in the end zone, just missed it by a hair. Mm-hmm. They was like, bro, any, any tight end that could get from the backside of the field all the way to the front side on a Hail Mary play like that, yeah, he need to be on our team. Yeah. You know, so I basically made the team just showing that I, I could run and I had speed and the athletic ability that I already displayed through many camps off that one game. That's, that's a, a fantastic story. I, I do. I do want to ask you, you're, you're no doubt watching the Ravens this last week. You saw yeah. Bateman get open effectively one on one on that Hail Mary play on, on the last play. First of all, I, I, I couldn't tell what happened because they the clip they showed was him on the ground, him getting up, yelling at the referee, like mm-hmm. where the freaking penalty at? I couldn't. I never could see clearly what happened. Did you see it? Yeah, I was at the game. So, so he they they had they had the three three by one, and that the they didn't throw to the three side. And it was one on one coverage. It wasn't like two on one or anything like that. And and it, it, you know, the ball was put up. Uh, it looked like a cutoff play to me. Maybe like it could, it could have been flagged, but you know, in that situation, it's never going to be flagged. The ball also was a little bit short of the goal line, which was unfortunate because Lamar had opportunity to run more up in the pocket and unleash more of an artillery shell because it wasn't going to. Uh, it wasn't going to be uh, impacted by anyone else, uh, but uh, it, it was a shame. It's about as close as you ever see to a to a one on one opportunity on a hail mary. Other than I guess we saw a couple of years ago the, the Falcons or the Jets or whoever it was got beat on a Raiders. That's who it was. Yeah. Uh, one with a hail mary. But anyway, that's 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 a great story. I I, I love uh, hearing all these fantastic camp stories from you. Is there anything else you'd like to tell me about the camp process that we maybe haven't hit on? Because this is fantastic stuff, and I think leading up to the cut down is great. Uh, but they had you back on the team then for the opening game? Yeah, yeah. So so what happened was – so I don't think a lot of people understand this either, Ken. So that year I made the practice squad, right? So to start the season off, they had to put me on the practice squad. So I had already been cut once and then re-signed once, right? Um, in order to put you on a practice squad, they actually have to release you to sign you to the practice squad. So I got cut twice, right? And then that first week of the season was a 911 incident with the Twin Towers. I'm in New mm-hmm. York with the Jets. I'm on the treadmill that morning, and you see the plane flying to the building. The secretary for the Jets come in and like, hey, turn on CNN. I turn on CNN. I'm running on the treadmill, and I'm watching the Twin Towers smoking. And then you can walk outside, literally, Ken, to the Jets practice field and look up, and you can see the smoke from the Twin Towers coming from downtown wow. New York. You know, so <clears throat> I'm – um. I look at the the first – I actually see the second plane flying to the building live, you know, with the Twin Towers because I'm at, I'm at the Jets. I'm in New York, you know. So um, that week, that following – that same week, we were supposed to be flying to Oakland to play the Oakland Raiders. We had just played our first game already, and we had um, – we were supposed to be flying to Oakland that week. 
So I only spent one week on the practice squad. They cut me from the practice squad and activated me to the active roster that week. We were supposed to be going to Oakland. We ended up canceling the Oakland game due to 9-11. No, none of the players thought it would be mm-hmm. right to fly. They actually came to the New York Jets and the Giants to ask us our opinions. You know, I think both of us might have been. I know we was flying to the West Coast. We was going to Oakland, you know, but they wanted to know our opinions. Should we play? Should we travel, et cetera? And we had a team vote that year. You know, Herm Edwards set, it up, set us all down in the team meeting room, and we all voted that we didn't think it was right to play with so many families losing their loved ones, with it happening in our own backyard. We thought it was disrespectful to go out and play a freaking football game right now when the whole country is mourning. Um, and we just thought it was so crazy that they would even want us to play. So we all voted against playing, right? So they canceled the entire seat, the entire season, that one game, that one week, the whole season got canceled. Nobody played. Yeah. You know, and that was my first that was my first year in the NFL, my first two weeks in the NFL. Then that next week we got a chance to play that game. And that was the first time I was actually practicing as a practice. I mean, as an active roster player, as a rookie week three. I know the other question I want to ask you related to being put on the practice squad, because it's a kind of a funny feeling to get what you know, you're one of the last guys cut and they're they're cutting you and they're offering you a practice squad spot kind of at the same point. And I know you have to go right. through the waiver process. So they'll yeah, tell you, yep. hey, you know, you do this and, and you, you know, if you were a veteran, they could just they could just resign you to the practice squad immediately. Or at least I don't know if under the rules of the day they allowed veterans. They still got to wait 24 hours. They still got to wait. OK. Yeah, they got to wait 24 hours. They just don't go on waivers, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But as a rookie, as a young guy, as an undrafted guy, you definitely had to clear waivers and they had that conversation with you. You know, um, look, we want to keep you. We think you did a phenomenal job. You know, usually it's the head coach or somebody you got a relationship with to have that conversation with you. They know who to kind of play with you with, you know, to kind of have that conversation with you with. So let's say, for instance, if I really like my position coach, they might have had him tell me, you know, hey, man, we're going to release you. We're going to put you on the practice squad. You made the team. But right now we could keep you and put you on the practice squad. So you're going to have to clear waivers. The way waivers work, if nobody picks you up within that 24 hours, then um, we're going to sign you back. <clears throat> if they pick you up, then we won't be able to resign you unless you turn it down. You know, so if somebody try to pick you up, then, you know, make sure you tell them no. So, so right. That's the other the other thing. So someone can sign you to their active squad and you don't have any choice in the matter. You got to go. But but you can also be enticed like the Ben Mason treatment last year with the Ravens that he was drafted as a fifth round pick. And then New England didn't didn't sign with their active roster, but they, they told him we got a better opportunity here. Come be on our practice squad. So did you get calls like that during the during the time? So what happens is this is what happens. Like you don't have to go if somebody want to activate you. Right. Usually if they take you from one practice squad to another, like if I'm safe, if I'm on a Jets practice squad, the only way I can leave to another team, if they activate me, the other team has to activate me. Mm-hmm. If they cut me to put me on the practice squad, they don't have to activate me. They can just sign me to their practice. squad, Right. So they can, Hey, they can entice you with an active roster spot. We need you for the active roster. You know, of course, active roster is way freaking more money than practice squad. So you're an idiot not to take an active roster spot. At the same time, you're an idiot if you go to a bad situation. You know, so it's it's multiple ways to play it. But if you clear waivers from those 24 hours, you get re-signed by the team. You guarantee the spot on your team right now. So you don't want to gamble. I think a lot of times we're trying to go to somebody else's team where they don't know you at all, unless you hate where you at, you know. And a lot of times players do hate where they at. And I try to tell people this all the time, like this whole game is about confidence. If your staff don't believe in you, if your coaching staff treats you like crap and you feel like they don't believe in you and, and believe and they're not help developing you with confidence, then you, it's, it's probably better for a player to leave. You want to go somewhere where they believe in your abilities and they, they think you're very, very good. 
there's a cornerback right now that plays for the Green Bay, um, not the Green Bay Packers, the Minnesota Vikings. He was on Green Bay last year. His name is Shannon Sullivan. When I was at Georgia State, me and him had a bunch of these conversations, right? And I was trying to express to him, I said, Shannon, your most important thing is to go somewhere where you fit in, where they got guys like you and they understand guys like you and they want guys like you to play. And you need to go with a coach that's going to that's gonna help build your confidence. Because he had a ton of confidence when we first got there at Georgia State. And my staff at Georgia State was tearing down his confidence. You know, and I kept telling the NFL teams, like, man, this kid going to play for a long time. I'm telling you right now, he'll be, I don't know if he's going to be a starter, but he could be a backup in this league for a long time, like 10 years, easy. And they was like, really? I was like, yeah, I'm telling you. In some place he'll go, he'll start in the slot, he'll start out wide because he's a smart kid. He was a 3.8, 3.9 GPA kid, you know, and he, I think he was a business major or something like that. So he wasn't like no slack major either, mm-hmm. you know, and he killed it. And he graduated, <laughs> he graduated, had his master's in five years, you know? So, I mean, he graduated in three and he's got his master's the last two years of eligibility. And now he was going to change. I thought he should have got drafted. He ended up being one of the highest paid free agents coming out that year. Uh, he ended up going to um, Philly, didn't end up in Green Bay, played about four or five years in Green Bay. Now he's in, um, now he's in Minnesota. He's been there for he's, it's his first year in Minnesota. He's, he's probably starting in slot right now in Minnesota, you know, but he's a phenomenal football player. And confidence is everything, Ken. Like if they don't build your confidence, a lot of these coaches don't respect undrafted free agents. They don't care about you. They don't understand the grind and the struggle that it takes for you to get there. They don't treat you like you're human sometimes. That confidence level is so important, so important for us to grow. All right. Well, that's that's a, 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 some good information on on making a choice there. Let, let me let me backtrack to one item though. You, you're okay. you're saying if if you get claimed off waivers, I thought at least on your on your initial things, they still have the right. They, a claim is being made on the player. Obviously, you don't have to you don't have to play football at all. But if you play football for someone, you have to play for football for the for the team that claimed you, right? Yeah, you got to okay. play for like if the Jets. If the Jets cut me and said they're going to put me back on the practice squad, mm-hmm. I'm on practice squad. They got rights to me. Yeah. So once they sign me to a practice squad contract, then they got rights. Mm-hmm. The only way they can steal me from that is if, they, if somebody going to bring me and put me on an active roster. Right. That's the only way it's ever really happened for me. So when, when I got put on waivers, I've never had a team. that My first year with New York, I didn't have enough film because they only seen me. People had only seen me in practice. Mm-hmm. So the only the Jets knew I was a baller. You know, nobody else knew, right? They didn't know how well I did in training camp because nobody – there was no film that they saw. But if I had played four preseason games, then other teams would have been like, okay, Wilcox is legit. Let's go get him. But I only played one game, and they didn't throw me the ball the whole game. So nobody still knew what I can really do. You know, so the Jets kind of had me sneakily, you know, kind of hidden, right? So even though they was cutting me, putting me on the practice squad, nobody knew they was putting me on the practice squads but the Jets. Mm-hmm. So everybody else probably just thought they was cutting me. You know, rightfully so. There's no film on them. Cut them, you know? So – when they, when they released me and put me on the practice squad, now I'm on the practice squad for the New York Jets. I got a call from Tampa Bay in year two. The Jets put me back on the practice squad in year two. Mm-hmm. And Tampa Bay Buccaneers literally called my agent and said, hey, we're interested in Wilcox. We know he's on the Jets practice squad. Um, would he be interested in being a Buccaneer? And my agent called me and was like, hey, Wilcox, Tampa Bay just called. This is like week 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and they was like, hey, um, Tampa Bay just called and they're interested in signing you. Are you interested? I'm like, hell yeah. I'm on a practice. I've been on the practice squad all year. I don't know what's going on this year. Last year I was activated week two. This year I'm on the practice squad all year. I'm bigger. I'm faster. I'm stronger like they asked me to be. I put on all this damn weight. And now they got me on the practice squad. And we are you talking about going back to the South? Hell yeah. It's cold as hell up here. Let's go. <laughs> right? So I'm ready to go, Ken. And then he's like, oh, you, he said, like, he, they want to know if the Jets 
try to activate you, would you stay? Okay. And I, I go ahead. That that, that was that was the question I was going to ask. So so yeah. you you get a you get an offer not an offer you 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 you're, you're signed you know it's an offer to get signed off the practice squad because you're right. not going through the waiver process right and then you, your your current team then still has the opportunity to sign yes. you if they would like to and then what what actually happened in your case you you did go to the camp so, so in my case <clears throat> in my case we sucked that year in New York we wasn't going to the playoffs Tampa Bay was balling that year that's the year I went to the Super Bowl and won the mm-hmm. Super Bowl with the Bucks you know they was balling that year it was John Gruden's first year. Um, and I was thinking, like, you know what, man? Like, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I don't know what the Jets got planned for me. They still bounce me around from position to position. They don't know where I am, where, where I'm going to play, if I'm going to play. I'm ready to go. Like, if they try to, if the Jets try to compete, I'm not going to even listen to it. I'm ready to go. He was like, you sure? I was like, I'm 100% sure. He hung up the phone. He called back Tampa. Tampa said, get him on a plane. Get him down here right now. This is on my day off on a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. You know, so – my agent literally called me back. Hey, pack your bag for like a week. Go to the airport. Same way my coach called me from New York a year before. Go to the airport. They're going to have um, flight instructions for you when you get there, um, et cetera, et cetera. Your, congratulations, you're a Buccaneer. That's how he said it. Congratulations, you're a Buccaneer. I literally called my um, girlfriend I was talking to at the time. She came and met me, and we went to the airport together, got my bag, and she dropped me off. I jumped on a plane, flew to Tampa. By the time the Jets knew what was going on, I was already, I think, halfway to Tampa or in Tampa. You know, they before they even knew, before my agent called them to make sure I let them know what was going on, I was already on a plane to Tampa. You know, so when I got to Tampa, they, they picked me up from the airport, brought me right to the facilities. The facilities was trash. It was worse than what New York had at the time. Tampa was like in some trailers right beside the airport. It was crazy. So I literally get there. They signed me. My contract, um, I locked in and I'm signed to the active roster. Got like um, a $200,000 pay raise from what I was getting in New York. I think I was getting like 85000 at the time in New mm-hmm. York. Then I got like, I think I was getting two eighty five or something like that now, you know, on, on the active roster. So now I'm in Tampa and I'm practicing every single day and I'm practicing special teams and all that stuff. They wanted me to play special teams because Nate Webster had got hurt. And um, then we, going into, we, we finished up our season that year ran everybody and then we went to the playoffs and played every playoff game on the road and won everybody every playoff game went to the Super Bowl and won and so and I was really I was literally contemplating quitting football that year I had I had just finished praying to God like before I got that call from Tampa like God give me a sign like I don't know if this is what I'm supposed to be doing no more I've did everything they asked me to do I'm on the practice squad all year and at first can is one of those things where you like I don't care if I'm on the practice squad as long as I'm on the team I'm happy but when you're on the practice squad you're like bro this shit sucks Mm-hmm. I'm practicing every day. I'm getting my body beat up every day, but I don't get a chance to do the most important thing is go play on Sunday and build a fan base and enjoy the, the laughter, the cheers, the, you know, all the roars that you get from being amazing. I started missing catching touchdowns. I started missing, you know, you know, making big plays in front of crowds. And I, and it really became, really became disheartening. to me. Did you get a chance to stand on the sidelines at least for the games? The Jets wouldn't even let you be on the sideline back wow. then. Wow. You had to wow. Sit in the wow. stand with the fans. Okay. At the home games, we were literally sitting in the stands like a fan, and you wouldn't even travel with the team. Uh, so when the team would go to Oakland to play Oakland, you had the crib, sitting at the crib, watching them play on TV like a fan. Then you go to the home game, you sit in the stands, they give you tickets, you sit in the stands like a fan. I don't know if that was Herm was doing or if it was Woody Johnson's doing, you know, but that's what it was. I never experienced that in Tampa because I was on the active roster the entire time in Tampa. And then when I got to Baltimore, I was a stud for the first time in my career. So the they I I I'm I find this very strange. I know in the Super Bowl in 2000, players like Kelly Gregg and whatnot were on the sideline, 
you know, enjoying the soaking up the experience. And right. you you were on the active roster for the for the uh, Super Bowl in '02. Yep. Okay. Uh, so so you were there for that, obviously. But but I I, I would love to know you know, how that's treated. And it's very, it seems strange, like what the Jets were doing. It doesn't seem right. Now, I, I would understand if they, you didn't travel to a road game because they've got some extra expenses with that. But having you there for a home game on the sideline, that just seems normal. It seems very normal that you would be like, right, right now you go to a Ravens game, all the practice squad guys on the sideline dressed in Ravens apparel or whatever, you know, with their necklaces on, chains and stuff on, just having a good time, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, that's what it should have been like in, in New York. But even though you was on the team, you didn't feel like you was a part of the team when it came down to game day. And that was probably one of the most frustrating things for me. And I hated that. Like my first year, I was on the active roster for over half the year, you know? So even though they had cut me and put me on the active roster week two, I think by week nine, they cut me, put me back on the practice squad. And then by the playoffs, they cut me and put me back on the active roster again, you know? So I played my first game in the playoffs, you know, against Oakland that year. We lost the first round of the playoffs. So um, that was as a rookie. And then my second year, they put me on the practice squad all year. I was absolutely miserable, 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 miserable. Like I was like, this ain't for me. Like I thought I could do this, but I can't. And I had to really have a come to Jesus meeting, you know. And in that meeting, I prayed. I asked God, man, give me a sign if this is what I'm supposed to do. And a week later, I got that call from Tampa Bay. All right. Outstanding. Daniel, just fantastic stuff. Thanks for spending all this time with us. I appreciate you, you know, taking time out of your day and giving us all this stuff. I was looking for inside football. We got a lot of inside football, but it's just more like inside life in the NFL, which is, which is in, in a lot of ways, even you hear less about. Uh, right. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Tell folks where they can either talk football online with you or follow your podcasts, whatever you might have. Well, you know, we got the Believe in the Ravens podcast on the Believe Network, and it's on every platform for as far as podcasts are concerned, Apple, all those things, iTunes, all that stuff. So um, you can definitely do that. And then um, you can always follow me on Twitter at Coach Wilcox, and you can follow me on IG at Daniel.Wilcox on IG. But I appreciate it, Ken. Anytime you have me on, man, you always do an awesome job. Outstanding. Thank, thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that. Other folks out there, if you want to do a film study short, hit me up with a DM on Twitter. They're always open. I'd love to hear from you. i got time for at least one per week uh, in terms of that. And Daniel, I'm going to hit you up again about about Big Mitch in terms of uh, of his. Absolutely, uh, uh, he'd be a great he'd be a great show here. I guarantee you, in terms of his experiences and and uh, yeah. life as a nomad in the NFL. Don't forget to remind me. I'll definitely set you guys up. Much appreciated. Uh, uh, thanks again for coming on, and we'll talk to you next time on. All right, Ken. Thanks, buddy. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.